welcome to the weekly podcast of Covenant Grace Menifee. Each week, we gather to better understand the teachings of the Bible and how to live them out in our daily lives. We hope and pray that you're encouraged by this week's message. Romans 16. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, a servant of the church at Sencrie, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever way she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risk their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks as well. Greet also the church in their house. Greet my beloved Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Greet Mary, who has worked hard for you. Greet Andronicus and Junia, my kinsmen and my fellow prisoners. They are well known to the apostles, and they were in Christ before me. Greet Ampliatus, my beloved in the Lord. Greet Urbanus, our fellow worker in Christ, and my beloved Stachys. Greet Apelles, who is approved in Christ. Greet those who belong to the family of Aristobulus. Greet my kinsman Herodian. Greet those in the Lord who belong to the family of Narcissus. Greet those workers in the Lord, Tryphena and Tryphosa. Greet the beloved Persis, who has worked hard in the Lord. Greet Rufus, chosen in the Lord, also his mother, who has been a mother to me as well. Greet Ansicritus, Phlegon, Hermes, Petrobas, Hermas, and the brothers who are with them. Greet Philologus, Julia, Nerus, and his sister Olympus, and all the saints who are with them. Greet one another with a holy kiss. All the churches of Christ greet you. I appeal to you, brothers, to watch out for those who cause divisions and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve our Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery they deceive the hearts of the naive. For your obedience is known to all, so that I rejoice over you, but I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent as to what is evil. The God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Timothy, my fellow worker, greets you. So do Lucius and Jason and Sosipater, my kinsmen. I, Tertus, who wrote this letter, greet you in the Lord. Gaius, who is host to me and to the whole church, greets you. Aristus, the city treasurer, and our brother Cortus greet you. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God, and thank you. If any scripture reading deserves applause... That was it. That's like the toughest scripture reading ever. And the advantage of that is that I don't have to try on some of those names because they've already been read. Thank you guys for joining us. Let's pray and ask God's help. Father, we uh, you remember the words of your son that apart from him we can do nothing. And Lord, we acknowledge that right now. Apart from you, I can do nothing here that's of any good. Lord, and that these people can do nothing apart from your son. And yet the promise is if we abide in him, we'll bear much fruit. And so we pray, Lord, that this will be one piece of that this morning as we gather before your word, as your spirit works on our hearts. We pray, Lord, that you would cause us to abide in him and bear much fruit, both individually and as families, and Lord, as a church body, both gathered here and extended across the world, people like Lorian and Holly and other lands, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So uh, this is one of those passages 
that you might be tempted to skim or skip because it's a bunch of names you don't know. It's like attending a long graduation ceremony. You only know one kid, and you're kind of going through all these names. You're like, yeah, you know, and you don't know them. But if you're interested in the early church and how it functioned, guys, this is a goldmine of understanding the early church and understanding our church. It's also a goldmine of baby names. You know, it's always a bummer when you name your kid what you thought was a really unique name, and then they end up being, you know, Isabella A, Isabella B, Isabella C in their classroom. If you name your kid Susipiter, they will not have to use their, the initial of their last name. So anyway, this is a place of many births and many babies, and so dig in here. There's some good stuff, you know? And, uh, but anyway, Romans 16 is the first time that Paul uses the word church in this letter, actually. Ecclesia means gathering or assembly. And so it's a great window into the church. You know, who were they? You know, what were their relationships like? How did they labor together to bring the gospel in such a way into Rome that it changed all Western civilization? Like, how did this happen? Who were these people? And this is the longest greeting by far in the New Testament. Paul seems to be trying to greet every single person he knows of in Rome. And so it's a great window into the church. And so from this, we learn something about the nature of the church. We learn, you know, what is this group about? What is this gathering of God's people, our gathering of God's people? What is it about? What is the church? And from this passage, I think we could real simply say that the church is a diverse family on mission. Three things. The church is a diverse family on mission. First, the church is diverse. We know a lot about some of these people. We don't know a lot about some of the others. Some of them, we just know their names. But what's really cool is scholars are able to take these names and figure out their gender, a lot of times their nationality, and even whether they were slaves or free. You can tell something about their names because in that culture, names gave you a lot of information. And so from that, we can find out that there's both men and women in this church. They're, they're both slaves and wealthy. Actually, the majority of these names are either slaves or freed slaves. The majority of the people in this church. And these are people that Paul's saying were workers in the church. There were also wealthy people, though. Phoebe was probably wealthy. Prisca and Aquila were probably wealthy. Certainly Gaius, the town treasurer, was probably wealthy. There are both Jews and Gentiles here. There's Gentiles from a bunch of different nations, but there are Jews too, and Paul calls them his kinsmen. Those are, those are the ones that are Jewish. And so the church is diverse, and the church is diverse. That's an important thing, by the way, guys. It's important that the church be diverse, not just from a sense of just wanting diversity. It actually is a fulfillment of the covenant gave to Abraham. The covenant that God gave to Abraham was that through one of his descendants, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And so when you gather as a church and you're seeing people from different backgrounds, it's a fulfillment of God's covenant. It's also a foretaste, guys, of the future. If you look at Revelation 7, you'll see that there's coming a time when a great multitude, which no one can number, from every tribe and nation and people and language will be standing before the throne and before the Lamb, worshiping him. Amen? And so the church's diversity is a foretaste of that as well. And guys, the church is diverse because the gospel's for everyone. The gospel's not just for one type of person. We all have one thing in common as a church, is that we have all found Jesus to be our greatest treasure. Amen? That's the one thing every single person has in common in this church, is that we found Jesus to be our greatest treasure. Sometimes that's the only thing we have in common, right? <laughs> you, you know, the last couple of years, you're like thinking, maybe I don't have that much in common with these people. Well, you know what? It's actually Jesus' glory that having been lifted up from the earth, he draws all people to himself. It's actually his glory that he is able to gather a bunch of people that don't have other things in common and knit them together as a family through the work he's done. The church is a diverse 
family. Notice the family language here in, in Romans 16. You've got sister, brother, mother. And the church is a family. Paul says that the mother of Rufus was even a mother to him. You can see in verse 13. And it's a warm, affectionate family. I don't know if you notice about how often he calls them beloved. He says, beloved this guy, beloved that guy, beloved Stashes, you know, which he was known for his, his amazing facial hair, uh, Brother Stashes. And, um, okay, I tried that out. I, I didn't get it anywhere. It was my own, but anyway. It's all right. We're moving on. Notice that he recognizes that they're chosen by God. Like verse 13, he says, Rufus, chosen in the Lord. And notice too, guys, in this text, how many times he says people are in Christ or in the Lord. That's actually heavy theological language. When he says that these people are in Christ or that they're in the Lord, he's talking about union with Christ, that the Spirit has connected us to Jesus so that we're united with him. He's in us and we're in him, even though he's in heaven. That's union with Christ language. He uses it eight times in here. You don't even notice it, probably. But God's joined us together by uniting us to Jesus. And another cool thing, too, guys, is that Paul remembers and celebrates their spiritual birth stories. Did you notice that? Take a look at verse 5. Epinetus, who was the first convert to Christ in Asia. Isn't that cool? Like he goes, oh, I remember. I remember his spiritual birth. Or Androcus and, and Junia, he says, were in Christ before me. You know, he remembers that these people came to Jesus before he did. The church, guys, is not a show. It's not a service provider, even a spiritual service provider. It's a family. And I just want to ask you this morning, have you lived into that reality? You know, because you can. Do you see the people in this room as your brothers and sisters and maybe even your mothers and fathers? Are they special to you because you know they were chosen by God and they've been united with Jesus? Do you know their birth stories? I was thinking about that, and I was thinking about, like, how many of these people do I actually know how they got saved, when they got saved? We should find that out. You know, a family knows when the other ones were born, right? And remembers the story. Like, we should know that. That should be something maybe when you're out there having donuts or something, that you'd ask, like, how did you come to the Lord? That would be something that would give us, you know, really great appreciation and love for one another, and it binds us together as a family. So the, the church is a diverse family on mission. One thing you can see from this section is that Paul is not like a Lone Ranger missionary. You know, a lot of times you get this idea, he's got a big P on his chest and a flowing cape, and it's like amazing Paul out there doing all this stuff by himself. He's not, though. He's doing it with a whole team of people. And the church in Rome was not a one-man show. He doesn't just greet like, hey, Pastor Bob, you're killing it over there. It's not that, right? We don't even know. I don't even see Pastor Bob in here. It's all the different people in the church. Notice the words worker and worked over and over again throughout this text. That all the people in the body are involved in ministry. One of the problems we have today, guys, is that we tend to think that ministry is something confined to a few full-time people. It's something very ingrained in us. It's something very, very ingrained in our culture that this is so-and-so's church, you know, and it's, it's the pastor. It's a, this is a, the full-time people. Those are the ones that do ministry. We have made it very convenient for you guys to remember that that's not the case because we don't have any. I don't know if you guys realize that. We do not have any full-time employees. No, none of us are, do this for a living. This is all volunteer. And while that's not the only way to do it, it does have the advantage of saying, this is your ministry, you know, this is yours, which is so cool. And it's such a more exciting way to engage in the church, guys. A lot of people, they come to church, they stick around for a while, they get bored, they look for a, a spiritual thrill somewhere else, they get bored there, they move to another place. You know why they're bored? Because this isn't a spectator thing. Christianity is not a spectator sport. Of course you're bored. You're not involved in ministry. 
If you're involved in ministry, you're definitely not going to be bored. You might be frustrated. You might be tempted to be angry. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) But you won't be bored. You know, you're going to have the excitement of actually dealing with people and ministering. And there's nothing boring about the lives of these people. And so be involved in ministry. Get plugged in. Be involved. We can see here that the first century church model here was that ministry was done by the whole church. If they had a bulletin and they listed the ministers of the church, it's all these people. And more that Paul doesn't know. These are just the ones he knows. And so each person playing a part, using their gifts, uh, living their calling to do the Great Commission together. Everybody's all in. And and I really see that in you guys as well. I mean, this has to be everybody all in, right? Some of you guys, you know, Jack, he'll haul the trailer over here. And we have people that set up and tech and sound and and worship people and a bunch of worship people. And we have, you know, people doing hospitality out front, Naima Monique setting all that up and the people that help them and, you know, people greeting and then more people greeting that aren't even greeters, which is good because this main command in this text is to greet people. So this is like a really important one. But greeting, you've got uh, children's ministry, super important, by the way, and awesome and fun and you should do it. We have so many kids. And you guys got to realize too that like doing children's ministry is a huge part of our mission here right? A huge part of our mission, because a lot of times you'll have families that maybe even the parents aren't believers, and, but their kids want to go to church, and they come, and they love children's ministry, and they come back, and those people have gotten saved. I mean, so it's an important thing, not just to care for the whole body, like Josh was talking about, that we all have a responsibility for one another's kids and discipleship, but it's something that we do as outreach as well. So children's ministry, sign up. Gabe's right here. He can take your name. Midweek, you know, you think about midweek, people having meals, having people over, having hospitality, people hosting community groups, we got youth ministry, we got people meeting up for one-on-one discipleship, we got all the people that invite people here. You know, people are like, well, how do we, how do we get more people to come here and hear the gospel? You. We actually have no other strategy. People are surprised. I mean, you didn't notice a blimp or anything, did you? Or we had a plane with a banner? Like, there is no advertising. There's a very simple website, and there's you. Isn't this exciting? This is your thing to build. It's so awesome. So every member, guys, has a ministry to do. And we're going to look at a few of these ordinary people, these gospel workers. I want to focus on a few that Paul says a lot about, and they're in verses 1 through 7. First one's Phoebe. And I know if you grew up when I grew up and you hear Phoebe, there's only one Phoebe. But this is the original Phoebe. Okay, here we go. I commend to you our sister Phoebe, verse 1, a servant of the church of Sancria, that you may welcome her in the Lord in a way worthy of the saints and help her in whatever she may need from you. For she has been a patron of many and of myself as well. We know from Phoebe, it says that she's a servant of this particular church, Sancria. And that word servant there is the same word for deacon. It's very likely she's an actual deacon. And the reason I say that is because it's servant of that church. It sounds like an office. Um, the actual term there is in the masculine. So it, it probably is an office. So Phoebe was a deacon. We can see from 1 Timothy 3 that when it says, and the women, that, that both men and women were deacons in the early church. We're actually going to announce some deacons soon. We're all out of deacons. But we got new deacons that we're going to announce in a couple of weeks, which will be exciting. Phoebe was a deacon. Phoebe was a patron. This is kind of cool. It says she was a patron of many and of, of Paul. So she's probably wealthy. She was somebody that would supply the needs of missionaries. You think about Lorian that was here. She has many patrons. You could be a patron of hers. But this is something where she would actually assist missionaries and give them hospitality when they were at home. 
And Phoebe was a highly, as you can see, highly esteemed, highly influential member of that church. And, and the cool thing is, is that Phoebe got the honor of, of bringing this letter to the Church of Rome. She got to actually be the person that delivered it, which is super cool. And he uses this letter as a letter of commendation for her as well. Uh, a couple more people. Verse 3, Prisca and Aquila. It says, Greet Prisca and Aquila, my fellow workers in Christ Jesus, who risked their necks for my life, to whom not only I give thanks, but all the churches of the Gentiles give thanks. Greet also the church that is in their home. Prisca and Aquila, guys, were a husband and wife team. I think this is super cool for you married people to think about. But they were a husband and wife team. Uh, Prisca is the wife. In Acts, she's called Priscilla. I'm going to use Priscilla because I'm used to calling her that. We're close like that, and I normally use Priscilla. So, but Priscilla and Aquila, they had originally come from Rome. So they were in Rome originally. And then they got booted out in 49 AD. Claudius booted out all the Jews. That tends to happen throughout history. They got booted out. They went out. And, uh, and then Paul met them in Corinth. They weren't paid ministers. They were tent makers, like literal tent makers, just like Paul was. And so they made their living kind of doing leather work or tent making all throughout the empire, going on all throughout places like Corinth and Ephesus and stuff like that. And so they're these traveling merchants. And while they're traveling, they're using the flexibility of their job and their trade and their contacts to preach Christ and plant churches. Isn't that cool? these traveling uh, merchants. And wherever they lived, we, we know that the church met in their home because in other letters, including this one, he says, greet the, the church that's in their home. They would gather in their home. And that's how the early church met, guys, most of the time, is they met in homes. Wealthy people's homes, you know, could probably have 70 or 80 believers gather there. Paul greets uh, five house churches in this list, including theirs. Sometimes the church actually, though, would do what we're doing. They'd rent a public facility and meet in that. We know that in Acts that Paul rented out the Hall of Tyrannus for two years and used that like this as a, as a public place to share Christ and teach. What's really cool here, look at verse 4. It says that Paul uh, says that Priscilla and Aquila risk their necks for my sake. Isn't that awesome? It's so cool, guys, to recognize people in the church that have particularly endured, <laughs> that have particularly stuck their necks out that have particularly taken on some wounds for the church. I think it's important to look at that. I think it's important to honor people that have really put their all into the church and really put their lives on the line. We have some people like that today, Jordan and Kelsey, people that if Jordan and Kelsey hadn't been involved in Covenant Grace, there would be no Covenant Grace, you know, and carried the church on their backs, <laughs> almost literally, with Jordan maybe, you know, carried it on his back. But just, you know, it's great, you know, when you think about the body and think about the people in church, think about what they've done, you know, think about what they've done. And they're not looking for like some, we're not going to bring them up and give them an award or something like that. But it's just so great. It helps with your gratitude for the church. Like so many people here are giving so much for the gospel and it's a huge blessing. And I think we should, we should acknowledge that. He's probably talking here where they, they risk their necks. So is that there was a riot that broke out in Ephesus and they were going to kill Paul because he was destroying their idol-making economy, which is super awesome. I would love to destroy the idol-making economy here. And so this riot broke out, and they were part of kind of getting them out of there. That may be what he was talking about here. But Priscilla and Aquila guys were a true ministry team. And I just want to say to those of you here that are married, what's your goal and your vision for your marriage? I feel like we've left this out a lot sometimes in pre-marriage counseling and stuff like that. We talk about what marriage is and the roles and stuff. But what's your vision? What are your goals for your marriage. You might say, well, you know, we want to be happy. I'm like, okay, what else? Well, we want to, 
you know, build up some things, maybe buy a house, have some material success. I'm like, okay, that's cool. That's fine. What else? You know, we'd like to retire comfortably someday. Like, okay. Anything else? The happiness and success of our kids. I would just say, guys, aim higher. Right? Let's aim higher. Look at what Priscilla and Aquila did with their marriage. And these are just regular people, right? Doing their life, but doing their life with such intentionality. Priscilla and Aquila were a true ministry team. Did you guys notice that her name's first? This is kind of unique. And they really did minister as a team. Like there was this one time in Ephesus where they heard Apollos teaching. And Apollos was super eloquent, but his theology was a little off. You know, and they're listening. They're like, I like how it sounds, but there's some cringy parts of your theology. And so it says here that in Acts 18, 26, it says, listen to the language of this. When Priscilla and Aquila heard him, they took him aside and explained to him more accurately the way. Isn't that interesting? The two of them were theologically discerning, and they both took him aside. And it's nice that they didn't just throw something on social media about how he's a heretic. They took him aside, you know, and they explained to him. It says they both did. Isn't that cool? That she's a, she's a woman of great theology, and she has something to share. And I know what you're thinking right now as we go through this passage. You're thinking, man, the Bible is so oppressive to women. Were you thinking that when you were reading this? No, you weren't thinking that, right? There's nine women in here that Paul thanks for all sorts of ministry. You look at the life of Priscilla and Aquila, you look at all these people. Now, while the Bible does teach that only men should lead their homes, that men should be the heads of their homes, and that only men should be the elders of the church, it also shows, guys, that the ministry of the church is, is so essentially involving women, that women are essential to the health and the ministry of the church. The church, by the way, that was founded by Jesus, the first rabbi to call female disciples, right? And so I think, you know, we get one way or the other, we start to have our families be out of whack, or we don't have, you know, the men really leading their families, or you get the church out of whack, and you're, you're having elders of the church that aren't men. That's one way you can go awry. But the other way you can go awry is to create an environment that somehow feels like men are the only ones who do ministry. And that was not the case in the church here, not by a long shot. Here's another woman that's, that's interesting in here. Junia, look at verse 7. It talks about Junia, his kinsman and fellow prisoner, who's well known to the apostles and that was in Christ beforehand in verse 7. Junia, we can tell, was Jewish because she's Paul's kinsman. She was imprisoned with Paul. Some translations say that she was well known by the apostles. Some translations say she was well known among the apostles. It's hard to tell between the two. It doesn't mean she was a big A apostle. So you got the 12, you've got Paul. You have a lot of other people referred to as apostles that were more like missionaries. So it looks like what Junia was was a, a female missionary, which reminds me of Lorian a lot. And um, we met her like 15 years ago, by the way. We didn't just go on like missionaries.com and, and get you somebody, you know. We need a missionary here. We knew her 15 years. She was in our college ministry, Kaleo, back in the day. And she's always been a, a hardcore gospel worker. It wasn't just like she went on the mission field and started doing it. She was doing it here. And as we were kind of all living as this diverse family on mission, Lorian felt a calling to go on the foreign mission field. And we were super happy to send her. You know, and I just want to say to any of you today that if you're feeling a stir of the Lord to send you to a foreign mission field, we would love to send you. You'd actually be doing us a great favor if you, if you did that, you know, not just we want you to leave. It would be a great favor for you to leave. It'd be a great favor to us to be able to be a part of you doing that. And so if that's something you're stirred to do, please let us know. We would love to send you. But guys, isn't the church a gift? You know, you read this passage, and you're like, the church is such a gift, a diverse family on mission. Who doesn't want that? You know, there's so much negative talk about the church. 
talking about it's like this huge bummer. I like Jesus, but man, why do you have to connect me to this? Guys, the church is an amazing gift, an amazing gift. The Lord didn't just leave us as solitary orphans to somehow live out the mission, but gives us a family. So how should we treat this gift? Well, Paul tells us in this text two things. Greet it and guard it. And the greet is the major command here. The major command is to greet. And I love what Paul does. He doesn't just say, I greet this person and I greet that person. What does he say? He goes, you guys greet them for me, right? So it's a command for them to greet, which is super cool. He says, you greet them for me. That's the command in this text. And so we should always be greeting one another every time we see each other as brothers and sisters, as fellow gospel workers, as God's chosen ones, as those who are in Christ, as, as, as God's beloved. And guys, we should really, and I think I struggle with this, especially in the morning here, because there's so much to do. We should really see and appreciate each other. Like, really see each other and appreciate each other. When you greet each other. I was humbled last week because I was doing the whole herding cats thing where I'm trying to get all you guys to come in here, which you won't. You won't come in. And so I'm trying to get you to come in. I'm like, you're going in, you know? And I'm a horse vet, but I did a little cattle stuff a long time ago. And there's these, it's like a battery with a pole and two prongs. And it electrocutes them, you know, electrocutes the cows, which sounds mean, but if you worked with cows, you'd be like, yeah, I need one of those. But I was like, I need one of these, you know? I wouldn't use it on you. I'd probably just make the noise. Maybe it was happy once, and then from then on, you probably wouldn't need to be touched with it. That's how the cows work anyway. And you're smarter than that. But anyway, I'm hurting all these people in. I'm trying to get them to come in, to call the worship and stuff. And uh, one of the kids in our church, actually, a young lady, she looked at me and she said, she looked at me right in the eyes and she said, good morning. And I was super convicted. I was super convicted. It was so cool because she really saw me. I was failing to see. I saw a sea of people. I was failing to see people, but she saw me. She noticed me, and it was like encouraging and convicting at the same time. Paul says this, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you for the glory of God, right? Amen. And so we should greet each other. We should greet each other affectionately, okay? Did you guys notice verse 16? Greet one another with a holy kiss. Did you guys... You just block that out. <laughs> you guys notice that? Greet one another. This, you might say, oh, it's just Paul. This is just in Rome. They did that. Actually, this is a super common New Testament greeting if you look it up. Greet one another with a holy kiss. And we were, you know, we were just about to start doing this, weren't we, Gabe? And then, and then COVID. So we can't. I know. We were going to just start doing it. Remember, we were like, let's get that going. We, yeah, no, we weren't going to do it. Um, you got to watch out for him. No, watch out for him. I shouldn't have done that. Um, but what's really cool is we actually, there is an amazing modern invention. It's called the Christian side hug. Okay? And it solves all our problems. So it's a way for you to greet one another warmly. And you should, guys. And this has been something, always been an awesome thing in Covenant Grace. I remember when I first came to French Valley, you know, it was like, you were sore. It was a lot of hugging. You know, it was good. But uh, w greet each other affectionately when you come. Notice people really affectionately greet them, and then stay around. You know, we have some time to stay around. Stay around. Use your gifts to encourage one another. Also, Paul says, though, we should guard it. Look at verse 17. Verse 17 seems to jump out of nowhere. You got, like, greetings to the, the people in Rome, and then you got greetings from the people in Corinth. That's where Paul's writing from. And then right in the middle, almost out of nowhere, you have this, verse 17. I appeal to you, brothers and sisters, to watch out for those who cause division and create obstacles contrary to the doctrine that you have been taught. Avoid them. For such persons do not serve the Lord Christ, but their own appetites, and by smooth talk and flattery, they deceive the hearts of the naive. 
for your obedience is known to all. So I rejoice over you. But I want you to be wise as to what is good and innocent to what is evil. I think the connection is this. He's talking about the church and the beauty of the church and what a gift it is. And I think what he's saying here is, don't let anybody ruin it. Right? And we've all been in situations where I got ruined. You know? Don't let anybody ruin it. Don't, don't let divisive people ruin it. And you can see the two attacks. You see them in verse 17? The two attacks on the church in this passage are the community, our community together, he says, who caused division, and the gospel. He says, contrary to the doctrine you've been taught. And so the two attacks here are on our community and on the gospel itself. And that makes sense, guys, because that's what our mission depends on. It doesn't just depend on having an accurate gospel. It also depends on having a warm community. Guys, your unsaved friends, they don't just need to hear the gospel. They actually need to interact with the community of the church. The community of the church is the expression of the gospel. They need to see that. They need to be a part of it. They need to be welcomed into it. And, and what's really awesome about this is that we don't have to do this mission alone. I know I often talk about, you know, if we, I talk about praying or sharing the gospel, I can make you feel guilty. Because most of us go like, yeah, I don't pray enough. I don't share the gospel enough. The cool thing is, guys, in this text, as we can see, is that getting the gospel out is something we do together. I, I was reading this book a long time ago, and they talked about the three strands of evangelism, and they were these things. Make relationships with non-Christians, invite them into gospel community, and share the gospel. Like, if we can make a habit of those three habits, that, that's what we need to be doing. And that's something we do together. So, you know, maybe you just don't feel that comfortable sharing the gospel. You could make relationships, non-Christians. You can invite them here, and somebody here is going to share the gospel. They're going to hear the gospel preached. They're going to have it told to them. They're going to have it modeled. They're going to have it seen. And so if that's your fear, like, ah, I can't share the gospel, but I'm really good at making friends, and I really love this church, connect those people, you know? These are something we we should all be about. But making relationships, inviting them into gospel community, and share the gospel. In verse 17, we can see that the attacks on those last two things, community and the gospel, which is exactly where you'd expect the enemy to attack, right? The enemy's going to attack us. The enemy's going to attack us in the clarity of the gospel message through us and in our body. And you guys have seen both attacks. You guys, you've seen the doctrinal attacks on the church, and you've seen the community attacks on the church. You, you guys might say, well, why did you say the enemy, you know? What do you mean by that? These are just people, right? These are people causing division and confusion. Like, why are, why are you making it spiritual? Why are you saying the enemy? Did you notice how these people are described? In verse 18, it says that the people that do this are not serving the Lord Christ. They're worshiping themselves. And did you notice the other thing about them? It's through smooth and flattering speech they deceive. Who does that sound like? Right, that sounds like the enemy, right? And Paul makes that connection. Look at one verse down. Verse 20, the God of peace will soon crush Satan under your feet. It's like the best passage. So good. This is a great passage to text people, you know? If you want something like encourage someone, you, t- you text them, the God of peace is going to soon crush Satan under your feet. That's the text I want on a Monday morning, right? I'm going to get like 15 of them now, right? I'm like, oh, I see you. Text somebody else. But this is the promise, guys. This is where the church's harassment ultimately comes from. It comes from the enemy. And this is the hope for the church. The hope for the church, I'm going to spend a little bit of time on it, is that the God of peace will soon crush Satan under our feet. And so, you know, how will Satan be crushed? He's going to be crushed by the God of peace, it says. And that goes all the way back to a promise in in the very beginning of the Bible, right? Genesis 3.15, 
Adam and Eve sin against God. God judges and curses, and he curses the serpent by telling the serpent that one day a seed of the woman is going to crush his head, and that person is going to get bruised in the heel, that the seed of the woman will one day come and crush the head of the serpent. There'll be a child born at some point that will crush Satan's head. And Jesus did this, right? And he did it in a really unusual way. He did it through the cross. Through his death and his resurrection, he defeated Satan. He actually broke the enemy's hold on us because of our sin. And he's breaking his power over us because he's destroyed the power of death that he had. He's breaking his hold over the world. And the theological term for this, I think it'd be really cool to, to have in your head, is Christus Victor. The Christ is victorious. So the cross is about a bunch of things, but one of the things about it, it's about is, is crushing Satan, is defeating him. And when Jesus was raised from the dead and ascended, it became very clear that, that Jesus had struck Satan in the head and Jesus had merely been bruised in the heel, that he recovered from it. And though Satan still rages and he is dangerous, his dangerous raging is like, is like the, the agonal writhings of a dying serpent. Like, you don't want to mess with a dying rattlesnake, okay? But he's a dying rattlesnake. It's the agonal movements of a dying serpent. And I just want to ask you this morning, have you been freed from the grasp of Satan? I think it's really important to think about this. I hope you know that Satan's real. I don't know how else you'd explain the evil in the world. But have you been freed from his grasp, from his control, and from sharing in his fate? Guys, only Jesus can free you from that, because only he can free you from your sin. And so what happens when Satan gets crushed and removed from this world? Well, God here is called the God of peace. Then we'll have peace here finally. We'll have shalom. We'll have well-being, right? The curse will be reversed. The garden will be restored, except the garden will be the entire world. It'll be a garden planet, a garden world. And so how do we get from here to there? Jesus has dealt that decisive blow. How do we get to the point where Satan is completely destroyed and removed? And the way we get there, guys, is kind of surprising this text. You see it? Take a look at verse 20. How do we get there? We actually get there by the church being the church. Look at verse 20. The God of peace will soon crush Satan, what? Under your feet. Notice that Satan will be crushed under the feet of the church. And I just want to say something that's not super popular, and I love that it's not, I, I don't care, is that I believe in the sufficiency of Scripture, right, completely, And I also believe in the sufficiency of the church. That's one thing that people don't believe in today. They don't believe in the sufficiency of the church. And I mean the ordinary church doing what she's always done. There's not something new needed. The ordinary church doing the things that this church did. I mean, like this church in Rome. This was a small band of believers, guys, in a big, deep, dark Roman empire, evil empire. You're like, oh, things are bad now. This is Rome, okay, in the first century. These are people that will pin you to boards. You know, this is, a, this is a bad group of people. And they overcame that empire with the gospel over time. You know, we face powerful threats too. We face threats of like the widespread lack of agreement on truth. That's disturbing when we cannot agree on what the facts are, what truth is. We have a widespread lack of agreement on moral things. We can't agree on what's right and wrong. That's disturbing, you know. We have a pervasive lack of agreement on how you'd even get to the, that kind of truth. That's disturbing. We have increased tribalism and distrust and anger and fear. And you might think, you know, this culture has so many problems. You know, the ordinary church is too weak of a solution. If you guys want to just gather on Sunday morning and do your church thing, that's fine. But we need to do something stronger. This needs to be something bigger. And I would just say, okay, fine. Yeah, good luck with that. I don't know what it would be. Guys, where else are you going to put your efforts? 
and your hopes for this world to change. You going to put it in a political party? I think most of us feel a little like maybe not. Are you going to put it in a powerful leader? That could backfire. Are you going to put it in your 1,300 hours of social media a year? Three and a half hours a day. And I know we just heard from Lori and how it could be used effectively, but, you know, compare yours. <laughs> Three and a half hours of social media a day. 1,300 hours. What are we going to trust in? That we're going to send the right YouTube video out and it's just going to make everything better? Guys, Satan will be crushed under the feet of the church. That's God's promise right here. Satan will be crushed under the feet of the church. This is really cool. We need him to be crushed, don't we? We have problems? Yes. This is a promise from God. Put your hope and your effort into the only thing God said would triumph over this world. Satan will be crushed under the feet of the church. Your feet? It depends. Depends on if that's where you put your hope and your effort. I mean, guys, with three and a half hours of social media usage, if you were to put that towards being a gospel worker, you could be Priscilla or Aquila or Phoebe, <laughs> right? That's a, that's a part-time job, right? It's amazing. H- how do we crush Satan under our feet? Well, when was the last time in Romans that feet were mentioned? Do you guys remember? How do we crush Satan under our feet? Where was it? Where? Chapter 10. Romans 10 verse 14 says, How beautiful are the feet who preach good news. Isn't that awesome? Isn't that a cool connection? This is a cool connection. I love that it's the beautiful feet of spreading the gospel. It, that, that the dragon will be crushed by beautiful feet is such a cool thing. That it'll be crushed by bringing the message of the gospel. Every time you guys apply the gospel to a struggling brother or sister situation, you apply it to their marriage or their loneliness or their sadness or, you know, their exhaustion or their disordered desires. Every time you do that, you're putting your foot right on Satan's head, right? Every time you share the gospel with a friend or neighbor, every time you invite them into gospel community, every time you advance the gospel, you bash Satan's head in just a little bit more. Isn't that awesome? I love this. Satan will be crushed by, by God through the church and also by grace. Look at verse 20. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. It's all grace, guys. It's all grace because we were once God's enemies. We deserve the crushing. Jesus was crushed in our place. He forgives our sin, and then he makes us ministers in the world. He gives us this amazing calling that you all have. And part of the gospel, grace, is that the Spirit gives us power to defeat the enemy through the gospel. Give me, give me another passage. Jesus said in Luke 10, Behold, I give you authority to walk on snakes and scorpions and authority over all the powers of, evil, of the enemy and nothing will injure you. Isn't that cool? I don't think that's about stepping on literal, you know, snakes and scorpions, do you? No. These are images, right, of, of evil powers. You'll be able to step on them. You guys want to crush some snakes? I love snakes. But you want to crush these spiritual snakes? Preach the gospel. Jesus also said, no one can enter a strong man's house and plunder his goods unless he first bind the strong man, then he will plunder his house. Jesus is talking about Satan being this like strong man and the house being his kingdom. And he's saying that since Christ came, that Satan, the strong man, has been bound and we can now plunder his house. You guys want to rip off Satan's house? Doesn't that sound awesome? Every time you preach the gospel, guys, you're plundering his house. You're taking people out of his kingdom into the kingdom of Jesus. Jesus also promised similarly that the gates of hell will not prevail over the church. And so, guys, I just want to encourage you. Let's not cower or wring our hands 
and act like somehow we're powerless. When through the gospel, we've been given the Holy Spirit, the ability to share the gospel, the Spirit's going to change people's lives through that message, and Satan will be crushed, and his kingdom will be depopulated by the church. Amen? Let's pray. Father, make it so, we pray. We pray that you would stir us up even more. I thank you for this body of people that really have gathered here to do ministry together, and I love that. It's exciting to me. It's humbling. It's encouraging, and I just pray, Lord, that you would cause us to do it more and more. We pray that you would do it for your glory, that you would shine forth as the most desirable of all things and beings. We pray you do it for your glory and for the joy of all those you will set free from the kingdom of darkness. Keep this vision in front of us, Lord. Help us to continue to to minister together as a team to seek to reach the lost, to encourage one another, Lord. I just thank you for my brothers and sisters here that know that the gospel is the one thing I need when I'm struggling. And I thank you for their skill in bringing it. And we pray, Lord, that we would strengthen one another in the gospel. Praise in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you for listening to this week's podcast. If you'd like to know more about our church, you can email us at info at May the Lord bless your week and guide your steps.